0: Section nine of the life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Lamon, Chapter Seven. The results of the canvass for the legislature were precisely such as had been predicted both by Mr. Lincoln and Mr. Rutledge. He had been defeated, as he expected himself, and it had done him much good in the politician's sense, as promised by Mr. Rutledge. He was now somewhat acquainted with the people outside of the New Salem district, and generally marked as a young man of good parts and popular manners. The vote given him at home demonstrated his local strength, and made his favour a thing of value to the politicians of all parties. Soon after his return from the army, he had taken quarters at the house of J. R. Herndon, who loved him then and always with as much sincerity as one man can love another. Mr. Herndon's family likewise became much attached to him. He nearly always had one of Herndon's children around with him. Mr. Herndon says of him further that he was at home wherever he went, making himself wonderfully agreeable to the people he lived with, or whom he happened to be visiting. Among other things, he was very kind to the widow and orphan, and chopped their wood. Lincoln, as we have already seen, was not enamoured of the life of a common labourer, mere hewing and drawing. He preferred to clerk, to go to war, to enter politics, anything but that dreary round of daily toil and poor pay. But he was now, as he would say, in a fix. Clerks were not wanted every day in New Salem, and he began to cast about for some independent business of his own, by which he could earn enough to pay board and buy books. In every community where he had lived the merchant had been the principal man He felt that, in view of his apprenticeship under those great masters Jones and Offutt, he was fully competent to run a store, and was impatient to find an opening in that line. Unfortunately for him, the circumstances of the businessmen of New Salem were just then peculiarly favourable to his views. At least three of them were as anxious to sell out as Lincoln was to buy. Lincoln, as already stated, was at this time living with Roe Herndon. Roe and his brother Jim had taken a store down to New Salem early that year, but Jim didn't like the place and sold out his interests to an idle convivial fellow named Barry. Six weeks later Roe Herndon grew tired of his new partner and sold his interest to Lincoln. The store was a mixed one, dry goods and groceries, about the same time mr radford who kept one of the new salem groceries fell into disfavour with the clary's grove boys who generously determined that he should keep a grocery no longer they accordingly selected a convenient night for breaking in his windows and in their own elegant phrase gutting his establishment convinced that these neighbourly fellows were inclined to honour him with further attentions and that his bones might share the fate of his windows radford determined to sell out at the earliest dawn of the coming day the next day he was standing disconsolate in the midst of his wreck when bill green rode up green thought he saw a speculation in radford's distress and offered him four hundred dollars for the whole concern radford eagerly closed with him and in a few minutes green owned the grocery and Radford was ready for the road to a more congenial settlement. It is said that Green employed Lincoln to make an inventory of the stock. At all events, Lincoln was satisfied that Green's bargain was a very good one, and proposed that he and Berry should take it off his hands, at a premium of $250. Radford had Green's note for $400, but he now surrendered it, and took Lincoln and Berry's for the same amount, endorsed by Green, while Lincoln and Berry gave Green a note for two hundred and fifty dollars, the latter's profit in the trade. Mr. Rutledge also owned a small grocery in the village, and this was speedily absorbed by the enterprising firm of Lincoln and Barry, who now had the field to themselves, being sole proprietors of the only store of the kind in New Salem, whether Mr. Lincoln sold liquor by the dram over the counter of this shop remains, and will for remain, an undetermined question. Many of his friends aver that he did, and as many more aver that he did not. When Douglas, with that courtesy for which he distinguished himself in the debates with Lincoln, revived the story, Lincoln replied that even if it were true there was but little difference between them, for while he figured on one side of the counter, Douglas figured on the other. It is certain liquors were a part of the stock of all the purchases of Lincoln and Berry. Of course they sold them by the quantity, and probably by the drink. Some of it they gave away, for no man could keep store without setting out the customary dram to the patrons of the place. Note. Here is the evidence of James Davis, a Democrat, aged sixty who is willing to give the devil his due came to clary's grove in eighteen twenty nine knew lincoln well knew jim and roe herndon they sold out to berry one of them did afterwards the other sold out to lincoln the store was a mixed one dry goods a few groceries such as sugar salt etc and whiskey solely kept for their customers or to sell by the gallon quart or pint not otherwise the herndons probably had the blankenship goods radford had a grocery store salt pepper and such like things with whiskey. it is said green bought this out and instantly sold to barry and lincoln lincoln and barry broke barry subsequently kept a doggery a whiskey saloon as i do now or did am a Democrat, never agreed in politics with Abe. He was an honest man. Give the devil his due, he never sold whiskey by the dram in New Salem. I was in town every week for years, knew, I think, all about it. I always drank my dram, and drank at Berry's often, ought to know. Lincoln got involved, I think, in the first operation. Salem Hill was a baron. End Note the difficulty of gathering authentic evidence on this subject is well illustrated in the following extract of mr george spears of petersburg i took my horse this morning and went over to new salem among the p's and a's and made all the inquiries i could but could learn nothing the old ladies begin to count up what had happened in new salem when such a one of their children was born and such a one had a bastard but it all amounted to nothing. I could arrive at no dates, only when those children were born. Old Mrs. Potter affirms that Lincoln did sell liquors in a grocery. I can't tell whether he did or not. All that winter, eighteen thirty-two, thirty-three, Lincoln struggled along with a bad partner and a business which began wrong and grew worse every day. Berry had no qualities which atoned for his evil habits, He preferred to consume the liquors on hand rather than to sell them, and exerted himself so successfully that in a few months he had ruined the credit of the firm, squandered its assets, and destroyed his own health. The store was a dead failure, and the partners were weighed down with a parcel of debts, against which Lincoln could scarcely have borne up, even with a better man to help him. At last they sold out to two brothers named Trent. The Trents continued the business for a few months, when they broke up and ran away. Then Barry, encouraged by the example of the Trents, cleared out also, and, dying soon after, left poor Lincoln the melancholy task of settling up the affairs of their ill-starred partnership. In the preceding transactions, the absence of any cash consideration is the one thing very striking, It is a fair illustration of the speculative spirit pervading the whole people green bought from radford on credit lincoln and berry bought from green on credit they bought from the herndons on credit they bought from rutledge on credit and they sold to the trents on credit those that did not die or run away had a sad time enough in managing the debts resulting from their connection with this unlucky grocery Radford assigned Lincoln and Berry's note to a Mr. Van Bergen, who got judgment on it, and swept away all Lincoln's little personal property, including his surveying instruments, his very means of livelihood, as we shall see at another place. The Herndons owed E.C. Blankenship for the goods they sold, and assigned Lincoln and Berry's note in payment, Mr. Lincoln struggled to pay by slow degrees this harassing debt to Blankenship through many long and weary years. It was not until his return from Congress in 1849 that he got the last dollar of it discharged. He paid Green his note of two hundred and fifty dollars in small installments beginning in 1839 and ending in 1840. The history of his debt to Rutledge is not so well known. It was probably insignificant as compared with the others, and Mr. Rutledge proved a generous creditor, as he had always been a kind and considerate friend. Certain that he had no abilities for trade, Mr. Lincoln took the best resolution he could have formed under the circumstances. He sat down to his books, just where he was, believing that knowledge would be power, and power profit. He had no reason to shun his creditors for these were the men of all others who most applauded the honesty of his conduct at the period of his greatest pecuniary misfortune. He talked to them constantly of the old debt, the national debt, as he sometimes called it, promised to pay when he could, and they devoutly relied upon every word he said. Rowherndon Herndon moved to the country, and Lincoln was compelled to change his boarding-place, He now began to live at a tavern for the first time in his life. It was kept by various persons during his stay—first, it seems, by Mr. Rutledge, then by Henry Onstadt, and last by Nelson Alley. It was a small log-house covered with clapboards and contained four rooms. Lincoln began to read law while he lived with Herndon. Some of his acquaintances insist that he began even earlier than this— and assert, by way of proof, that he was known to borrow a well-worn copy of Blackstone from A. T. Bogue, a pork dealer at Beardstown. At all events, he now went to work in earnest, and studied law as faithfully as if he had never dreamed of any other business in life. As a matter of course, his slender purse was unequal to the purchase of the needful books, but this circumstance gave him little trouble— for although he was short of funds he was long in the legs and had nothing to do but walk off to springfield where his friend john t stewart cheerfully supplied his wants mr stewart's partner h c dummer says he was an uncouth-looking lad did not say much but what he did say he said straight and sharp he used to read law says henry mchenry in eighteen thirty two or eighteen thirty three barefooted seated in the shade of a tree and would grind around with the shade just opposite barry's grocery store a few feet south of the door he occasionally varied the attitude by lying flat on his back and putting his feet up the tree a situation which might have been unfavourable to mental application in the case of a man with shorter extremities the first time i ever saw abe with a law-book in his hand says squire Goodby, He was sitting astride of Jake Bales's woodpile in New Salem. Says I, Abe, what are you studying? Law, says Abe. Great God Almighty, responded I. It was too much for Goodby. He could not suppress the blasphemy at seeing such a figure acquiring science in such an odd situation. Minter Graham asserts that Abe did a little of what we call sitting up to the fine gals of Illinois. But according to other authorities, he always had his book with him when in company, and would read and talk alternately. He carried it along in his walks to the woods and the river, read it in daylight under the shade-tree by the grocery, and at night by any friendly light he could find, most frequently the one he kindled himself in the shop of his old benefactor, the cooper. Abe's progress in the law was as surprising as the intensity of his application to study, He never lost a moment that might be improved. It is even said that he read and recited to himself, on the road and by the wayside, as he came down from Springfield with the books he had borrowed from Stuart. The first time he went up he had mastered forty pages of Blackstone before he got back. It was not long until, with his restless desire to be doing something practical, he began to turn his acquisitions to account, in forwarding the business of his neighbours, He wrote deeds, contracts, notes, and other legal papers for them, using a small dictionary and an old form-book, pettifogged incessantly before the justice of the peace, and probably assisted that functionary in the administration of justice as much as he benefited his own clients. This species of country-students' practice was entered upon very early and kept up until long after he was quite a distinguished man in the legislature. But in all this he was only trying himself, as he was not admitted to the bar until 1837, he did not regard it as legitimate practice, and never charged a penny for his services. Although this fact is mentioned by a great number of persons, and the generosity of his conduct much enlarged upon— It is seriously to be regretted that no one has furnished us with a circumstantial account of any of his numerous cases before the magistrate. But Mr. Lincoln did not confine himself entirely to the law. He was not yet quite through with Kirkham nor the schoolmaster. The valuable copy of the grammar he delighted to peruse is still in the possession of R.B. Rutledge, with the thumb-marks of the President all over it. He also studied natural philosophy, chemistry, astronomy, etc. He had no regular teacher, but perhaps received more assistance from Minter Graham than from any other person. He read with avidity all the newspapers that came to New Salem, chiefly the Sangamon Journal, the Missouri Republican, and the Louisville Journal. The latter was his favorite. Its wit and anecdotes were after his own heart, and he was a regular subscriber for it through several years when he could ill afford a luxury so costly. Note. According to Mr. McNamara, Lincoln took the Sangamon Journal and the Louisville Journal from 1832 to 1837, and Hill and Bale took the Missouri Republican and the Cincinnati Gazette, the missouri republican was first issued as a daily in september eighteen thirty six its size was then twenty five by thirty six inches mr lincoln was never a profound historical student if he happened to need historical facts for the purposes of a political or legal discussion he read them on the spur of the occasion for this reason his opinions of current affairs all through his life were based more upon individual observation and reflection, than upon scientific deductions from the experience of the world. Yet at this time, when he probably felt more keenly than ever, after the want of a little learning to embellish the letters and speeches he was ambitious to compose, he is said to have read Rollins's Ancient History, Gibbons's Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, and similar works, with great diligence and care. The books were borrowed from William Green, Bowling Green, and other parties in and about New Salem. But he greatly preferred literature of another sort, such as Mrs. Lee Hentz's novels, some of which he found among the effects of Mr. Ellis, at the time his companion and occasional bedfellow. He was very fond, Mr. Ellis declares, of short stories, one and two columns long, like Cousin Sally Dillard, Becky Wilson's Courtship, THE DOWN EASTER AND THE BULL, HOW A BASHFUL MAN BECAME A MARRIED MAN WITH FIVE LITTLE BASHFUL BOYS, AND HOW HE AND HIS RED-HEADED WIFE BECAME MILLERITES, AND BEFORE THEY WERE TO ASCEND AGREED TO MAKE A CLEAN BREAST OF IT TO EACH OTHER, AND HOW, WHEN THE OLD LADY WAS THROUGH, THE DOWN EASTER EARNESTLY WISHED THAT GABRIEL MIGHT BLOW HIS HORN WITHOUT DELAY. ONE NEW Salemite INSISTS THAT MR. LINCOLN TOLD THIS LATTER STORY WITH EMBEZZLEMENTS, embellishments and therefore he is firmly convinced that mr lincoln had a hand in originating it the catalogue of literature in which he particularly delighted at new salem is completed by the statement of mr rutledge that he took great pleasure in jack downing's letters mr lincoln still relished a popular song with a broad point or a palpable moral in it as much as he had ever enjoyed the vocal efforts of dennis hanks and his rollicking compeers of the gentryville grocery he even continued his own unhappy attempts although with as little success as before and quite as much to the amusement of his friends to the choice collection of miscellaneous ballads acquired in indiana he now added several new favorites like old Suki blueskin and some selections from the missouri harmony with variations by himself he was also singularly fond of an irish song which tells how st patrick came to be born on the seventeenth day of march you ask me says mr ellis if i remember the first time i saw mr lincoln yes i do i was out collecting back-tax for general james d henry i went from the tavern down to jacob bales's old mill and then i first saw mr lincoln he was sitting on a saw-log, talking to Jack and Real Armstrong, and a man by the name of Ho-Hammer. I shook hands with the Armstrongs and Ho-Hammer, and was conversing with them a few minutes, when we were joined by my old friend and former townsman, George Warburton, pretty tight as usual, and he soon asked me to tell him the old story about Ben Johnson and Mrs. Dale's blue dye, etc., which I did. And then Jack Armstrong said— Lincoln, tell Ellis the story about Governor J. Sickner, his city-bred son, and his nigger Bob, which he did, with several others, by Jack's calling for them. I found out then that Lincoln was a cousin to Charlie Hanks of Island Grove. I told him I knew three of the boys, Joe, Charlie, and John, and his uncle, old Billy Hanks, who lived up on the north fork of the Sangamon River, afterwards near Decatur. NOTE i myself knew old billy hanks his mother's brother and he was a very sensible old man he was father to mrs dillon on spring creek and charlie billy junior and john were his sons they were all low flung could neither read nor write some of them used to live in island grove sangamon county i remember the time that lincoln and e d baker ran in convention to decide who should run for congress in old sangamon that some of Baker's friends accused Mr. Lincoln of belonging to a proud and an aristocratic family, meaning the Edwardses and Todds, I suppose, and when it came to Mr. Lincoln's ears he laughed heartily and remarked, Well, that sounds strange to me. I do not remember of but one that ever came to see me, and while he was in town he was accused of stealing a Jew's harp. Josh Speed remembers his saying this. I think you ought to remember it, Beverly Powell and myself lived with Bell and Speed, and I think he said so in their store. After that a Miss Hanks came to spend the winter with Mrs. Lincoln. A. Y. Ellis End note. This interview took place shortly after the Black Hawk War, but it was not until the next year, 1833, the period at which we have now arrived, that Lincoln and Ellis became intimate— At that time Ellis went there to keep a store, and boarded at the same log tavern where Lincoln was. Lincoln, being engaged in no particular business, merely endeavouring to make a lawyer, a surveyor, and a politician of himself, gave a great deal of his time to Ellis and Ellis's business. He also used to assist me in the store, says this new friend, on busy days, but he always disliked to wait on the ladies he preferred trading with the men and boys as he used to say i also remember that he used to sleep in the store on the counter when they had too much company at the tavern i well remember how he was dressed he wore flax and tow linen pantaloons i thought about five inches too short in the legs and frequently he had but one suspender no vest or coat he wore a calico shirt such as he had in the black hawk war coarse brogans tan color blue yarn socks and a straw hat old style and without a band mr lincoln was in those days a very shy man of the ladies on one occasion while we boarded at this tavern there came a family containing an old lady and her son and three stylish daughters from the state of virginia and they stopped there for two or three weeks, and during their stay I do not remember of Mr. Lincoln ever eating at the same table when they did. I then thought it was on account of his awkward appearance and his wearing apparel. There lived at New Salem at this time, and for some years afterward, a festive gentleman named Kelso, a school-teacher, a merchant, or a vagabond, according to the run of his somewhat variable luck. When other people got drunk at New Salem it was the usual custom to tussle and fight and tramp each other's toes and pull each other's noses. But when Kelso got drunk he astonished the rustic community, with copious quotations from Robert Burns and William Shakespeare, authors little known to fame among the literary men of New Salem. Besides Shakespeare and Burns, Mr. Kelso was likewise very fond of fishing and could catch his game when no other man could get a bite. Mr. Lincoln hated fishing with all his heart. But it is the testimony of the countryside, from Petersburg to Island Grove, that Kelso drew Lincoln after him by his talk, and that they became exceedingly intimate, that they loitered away whole days together along the banks of quiet streams, that Lincoln learned to love inordinately our divine William and Scotia's bard, whom his friend mouthed in his cups, or expounded more soberly in the intervals of fixing bait and dropping line. Finally he and Kelso boarded at the same place, and with another merchant named Sincho of tastes congenial and wits as keen as Kelso's, they were always found together battling and arguing. Bill Green ventures the opinion that Lincoln's incessant reading of Shakespeare and Burns— had much to do in giving his mind the sceptical tendency so fully developed by the labours of his pen in eighteen thirty four thirty five and in social conversations during many years of his residence at springfield like offutt kelso disappeared suddenly from new salem and apparently from the recollection of men each with a peculiar talent of his own kind-hearted eccentric creatures no man's enemy and everybody's prey. They strolled out into the great world and left this little village to perish behind them. Of Kelso a few faint traces have been found in Missouri, but if he ever had a lodging more permanent than the wayside tavern, a haystack, or a hedge, no man was able to tell where it was. Of Offutt not a word was ever heard, the most searching and cunning inquiries have failed to discover any spot where he lingered for a single hour, and but for the humble boy to whom he was once a gentle master, no human being that knew him would bestow a thought upon his name. In short, to use the expressive language of Mr. Lincoln himself, he literally petered out. Mr. Lincoln was often annoyed by company. His quarters at the tavern afforded him little privacy, and the shade of the tree in front of the grocery was scarcely a sufficiently secluded situation for the purposes of an ardent student. There were too many people to wonder and laugh at a man studying law with his feet up a tree, too many to worry him for the stories and jokes which it was supposed he could furnish on demand. For these reasons it became necessary that he should retire to the country occasionally to rest and study. Sometimes he went to James Short's on the Sand Ridge, sometimes to Minter Graham's, sometimes to Bolin Green's, sometimes to Jack Armstrong's, and as often, perhaps, to Abel's or Rowe Herndon's. All of these men served him faithfully and signally at one time and another, and to all of them he was sincerely attached. When Bolin Green died in 1842, Mr. Lincoln, then, in the enjoyment of great local reputation, undertook to deliver a funeral oration over the remains of his beloved friend. But when he rose to speak, his voice was choked with deep emotion. He stood a few moments while his lips quivered in the effort to form the words of fervent praise he sought to utter, and the tears ran down his yellow and shriveled cheeks, Some of those who came to hear him, and saw his tall form thus sway in silence over the body of Bowling Green, say he looked so helpless, so utterly bereft and pitiable, that every heart in the audience was hushed at the spectacle. After repeated efforts he found it impossible to speak, and strode away, openly and bitterly sobbing, to the widow's carriage in which he was driven from the scene. Mr. Herndon's papers disclose less than we should like to know concerning this excellent man. They give us only this burial scene, with the fact that Bowling Green had loaned Mr. Lincoln books from their earliest acquaintance, and on one occasion had taken him to his home and cared for him with the solicitude of a devoted friend through several weeks of great suffering and peril the circumstances of the attempted eulogy are mentioned here to show the relations which subsisted between mr lincoln and some of the benefactors we have enumerated but all this time mr lincoln had a living to make a running board bill to pay and nothing to pay it with he was it is true in the hands of excellent friends so far as the greater part of his indebtedness was concerned but he was industrious by nature and wanted to be working and paying as he went he would not have forfeited the good opinion of those confiding neighbors for a lifetime of ease and luxury it was therefore a most happy thing for him and he felt it to be so when he attracted the attention of john calhoun the surveyor of sangamon county calhoun was the type of a perfect gentleman brave courteous able and cultivated he was a democrat then and a democrat when he died all the world knows how he was the president of the lecompton convention how he administered the trust in accordance with his well-known convictions and how after a life of devotion to douglas he was adroitly betrayed by that facile politician and left to die in the midst of obloquy and disaster At the time we speak of, he was one of the most popular men in the state of Illinois, and one of the foremost chieftains of the political party which invariably carried the county and the district in which Mr. Lincoln lived. He knew Lincoln and admired him. He was well assured that Lincoln knew nothing of surveying, but he was equally certain that he could soon acquire it. The speculative fever was at its height. He was overrun with business, the country was alive with strangers seeking land, and every citizen was buying and selling, with a view to a great fortune in the flush times coming. He wanted a deputy with common sense and common honesty. He chose Lincoln because nobody else possessed these qualities in a more eminent degree. He hunted him up, gave him a book, told him to study it, and said that as soon as he was ready he should have as much work as he could do. Lincoln took the book and retired to the country, that is, he went out to Minter Graham's for about six weeks, in which time, by the aid of that good master, he became an expert surveyor, and was duly appointed Calhoun's deputy. Of course he made some money, merely his pay for work, but it is a remarkable fact that, with his vast knowledge of the lands in Sangamon and adjacent counties, he never made a single speculation on his own account— It was not long until he acquired a considerable private business. The accuracy of his surveys were seldom, if ever, questioned. Disputes regarding corners and lines were frequently submitted to his arbitration, and the decision was invariably accepted as final. It often happened that his business kept him away from New Salem and his other studies for weeks at a time, but all this while he was gathering friends against the day of election. In after years, from eighteen forty four onward, it was his good or bad fortune frequently to meet Calhoun on the Stump; but he never forgot his benefaction to him and always regarded him as the ablest and best man with whom he had ever crossed steel. To the day of Calhoun's death they were warmly attached to each other. In the times when it was most fashionable and profitable to denounce Calhoun and the Lecompton Constitution, when even douglas turned to revile his old friend and coadjutor mr lincoln was never known to breathe a word of censure on his personal character on the seventh of may eighteen thirty three mr lincoln was appointed postmaster at new salem his political opinions were not extreme and the jackson administration could find no man who was at the same time more orthodox and equally competent to perform the duties of the office He was not able to rent a room, for the business is said to have been carried on in his hat. But from the evidence before us, we imagine that he kept the office in Mr. Hill's store, Mr. Hill's partner, McNamara, having been absent since 1832. He held the place until late in 1836, when New Salem partially disappeared, and the office was removed to Petersburg for a little while before his own appointment he is said to have acted as a deputy postmaster under mr hill the mail arrived duly once a week and the labours of distributing and delivering it were by no means great but mr lincoln was determined that the dignity of the place should not suffer while he was the incumbent he therefore made up for the lack of real business by deciphering the letters of the uneducated portion of the community and by reading the newspapers aloud to the assembled inhabitants in front of Hill's store. But his easy good nature was sometimes imposed upon by inconsiderate acquaintances, and Mr. Hill relates one of the devices by which he sought to stop the abuse. One Elmore Johnson, an ignorant but ostentatious proud man, used to go to Lincoln's post-office every day, sometimes three or four times a day, if in town, and inquire anything for me?' This bored Lincoln, yet it amused him. Lincoln fixed a plan, wrote a letter to Johnson, as coming from a negress in Kentucky, saying many good things about opossum, dances, corn-shuckings, etc. "'Johns, come and see me, and old master won't kick you out of the kitchen any more.' Elmore took it out, opened it, couldn't read a word, pretended to read it, and went away, got some friends to read it they read it correctly he thought the reader was fooling him and went to others with the same result at last he said he would get lincoln to read it and presented it to lincoln it was almost too much for lincoln but he read it the man never asked afterwards anything here for me it was in the latter part of eighteen thirty four that mr lincoln's personal property was sold under the hammer and by due process of law to meet the judgment obtained by van Bergen on the note assigned to him by Radford. Everything he had was taken, but it was the surveyor's instruments which hurt him most to part with, for by their use he was making a tolerable living, and building up a respectable business. This time, however, rescue came from an unexpected quarter. When Mr. Lincoln first came to New Salem, he employed a woman to make him a pair of pantaloons, which probably from the scarcity of material were cut entirely too short as his garments usually were soon afterwards the woman's brother came to town and she pointed abe out to him as he walked along the street the brother's name was james short without the necessity of a formal introduction says short we fell in together and struck up a conversation the purport of which i have now forgotten He made a favorable impression upon me by his conversation on first acquaintance, through his intelligence and sprightliness, which impression was deepened from time to time as I became better acquainted with him. This was a lucky impression for Abe. Short was a fast friend, and in the day of trouble a sure and able one. At the time the judgment was obtained, Short lived on the Sand Ridge, four miles from New Salem and Lincoln was in the habit of walking out there almost daily. Short was then unconscious of the main reason of Mr. Lincoln's remarkable devotion to him. There was a lady in the house whom Lincoln secretly but earnestly loved, and of whom there is much to be said at another place. If the host had known everything, however, Abe would have been equally welcome, for he made himself a strangely agreeable guest here as he did everywhere else, In busy times he pulled off his roundabout and helped Short in the field, with more energy than any hired man would have displayed. He was, said Short, the best hand at husking corn on the stalk I ever saw. I used to consider myself very good, but he would gather two loads to my one. These visits increased Short's disposition to serve him, and it touched him sorely when he heard Lincoln moaning about the catastrophe that hung over him in the form of Van Bergen's judgment. An execution was issued, says he, and levied on Lincoln's horse, saddle, bridle, compass, chain, and other surveyors' instruments. He was then very much discouraged, and said he would let the whole thing go by the board. He was at my house very much, half the time. I did all I could to put him in better spirits— i went on the delivery bond with him and when the sale came off which mr lincoln did not attend i bid in the above property at a hundred and twenty dollars and immediately gave it up again to him mr lincoln afterwards repaid me when he had moved to springfield green also turned in on this judgment his horse saddle and bridle at a hundred and twenty-five dollars and lincoln afterwards repaid him but after all mr lincoln had no friend more intimate than jack armstrong and none that valued him more highly until he finally left new salem for springfield he rusticated occasionally at jack's hospitable cabin situated four miles in the country as the polished metropolitans of new salem would say jack's wife hannah before alluded to liked abe and enjoyed his visits not less than jack did "'Abe would come out to our house,' she says, "'drink milk, eat mush, cornbread, and butter, "'bring the children candy, "'and rock the cradle while I got him something to eat. "'I fixed his pants, made his shirts. "'He has gone with us to fathers. "'He would tell stories, joke at people, "'boys and girls at the parties. "'He would nurse babies, do anything to accommodate anybody. "'I had no books about my house, loaned him none.' we didn't think about books and papers we worked had to live lincoln has stayed at our house two or three weeks at a time if jack had to work to live as his wife has it he was likewise constrained to fight and wrestle and tumble about with his unhappy fellow citizens in order to enjoy the life he earned by labor he frequently came to town where his sportive inclinations ran riot except as they were checked and regulated by the amicable interposition of abe the prince of his affections and the only man who was competent to restrain him the children at school had made a wide sliding walk from the top of salem hill to a river bank down which they rode on sleds and boards a distance of two hundred and fifty or three hundred yards now it was one of the suggestions of jack's passion for innocent diversion to nail up in hogsheads such of the population as incurred his displeasure and send them adrift along this frightful descent sol spears and one scanlan were treated to an adventure of this kind but the hogshead in which the two were caged leaped over an embankment and came near killing scanlan after that the sport was considered less amusing and was very much discouraged by that portion of the community who feared that, in the absence of more convenient victims, the boys might light on them. Under these circumstances, Jack, for once in his life, thought it best to abandon coercion and negotiate for subjects. He selected an elderly person of bibulous proclivities, and tempted him with a great temptation. Old man Jordan agreed to be rolled down the hill for a gallon of whisky. But Lincoln, fully impressed with the brutality of the past time, and the danger to the old sot, stopped it. Whether he did it by persuasion or force we know not, but probably by a judicious employment of both. "'I remember once,' says Mr. Ellis, "'of seeing Mr. Lincoln out of temper and laughing at the same time. It was at New Salem. The boys were having a jollification after an election.' They had a large fire made of shavings and hemp stalks, and some of the boys made a bet with a fellow that I shall call Ike that he couldn't run his little bobtail pony through the fire. Ike took them up and trotted his pony back about one hundred yards to give him a good start, as he said. The boys all formed a line on either side to make way for Ike and his pony. Presently here he comes, full tilt, with his hat off, and just as he reached the blazing fire ike raised in his saddle for the jump straight ahead but the pony was not of the same opinion so he flew the track and pitched poor ike into the devouring element mr lincoln saw it and ran to his assistance saying you have carried this thing far enough i could see he was mad though he could not help laughing himself the poor fellow was considerably scorched about the head and face jack armstrong took him to the doctor who shaved his head to fix him up and put salve on the burn i think mr lincoln was a little mad at armstrong and jack himself was very sorry for it jack gave ike the next morning a dram his breakfast and a sealskin cap and sent him home one cold winter day lincoln saw a poor fellow named ab trent hard at work chopping up a house which mr hill had employed him to convert into firewood Ab was barefooted and shivered pitifully while he worked. Lincoln watched him a few moments, and asked him what he was to get for the job. Ab answered, one dollar, and pointing to his naked and suffering feet, said that he wished to buy a pair of shoes. Lincoln seized the axe, and ordering the boy to comfort himself at the nearest fire, chopped up the house so fast that Ab and the owner were both amazed when they saw it done. According to Mr. Rutledge, Abe remembered this act with the liveliest gratitude. Once he, being a cast-iron Democrat, determined to vote against his party and for Mr. Lincoln. But the friends, as he afterwards said with tears in his eyes, made him drunk, and he had voted against Abe. Thus he did not even have an opportunity to return the noble conduct of Mr. Lincoln by this small measure of thanks. We have given some instances of Mr. Lincoln's unfailing disposition to succour the weak and the unfortunate. He never seems to have hesitated on account of actual or fancied danger to himself, but boldly espoused the side of the oppressed against the oppressor, whoever and whatever the latter might be. In a fisticuff or a rough-and-tumble fight he was one of the most formidable men of the region in which he lived it took a big bully and a persevering one to force him into a collision but being in his enemy found good reason to beware of him he was cool calculating but swift in action and terribly strong nevertheless he never promoted a quarrel and would be at infinite trouble any time to compose one an unnecessary broil gave him pain and whenever there was the slightest hope of a successful mediation whether by soft speech or by the strong hand, he was instant and fearless for peace. His good nature, his humor, his fertility in expedience, and his alliance, offensive and defensive, with Jack Armstrong, made him almost irresistible in his benevolent efforts to keep the ordinary ruffian of New Salem within decent bounds. If he was talking to Squire Goodby or Row Herndon, each of them give incidents of the kind— and he heard sounds or saw the signs which betoken a row in the street he would jump up saying let's go and stop it he would push through the ring which was generally formed around the combatants and after separating the latter would demand a truce and a talk and so soon as he got them to talking the victory was his if it happened to be rough jack himself who was at the bottom of the disturbance he usually became very much ashamed of his conduct and offered to treat, or do anything else that would atone for his brutality. Lincoln has often been seen in the old mill on the river bank to lift a box of stones weighing from a thousand to twelve hundred pounds. Of course it was not done by a straight lift of the hands. He was harnessed to the box with ropes and straps. It was even said he could easily raise a barrel of whiskey to his mouth when standing upright and take a drink out of the bunghole, but of course one cannot believe it frequent exhibitions of such strength doubtless had much to do with his unbounded influence over the rougher class of men he possessed the judicial quality of mind in a degree so eminent and it was so universally recognized that he never could attend a horse-race without being importuned to act as a judge or witness a bet without assuming the responsibility of being the stakeholder in the spring or summer of eighteen thirty two says henry mchenry i had a horse race with george warburton i got lincoln who was at the race to be a judge of the race much against his will and after hard persuasion lincoln decided correctly and the other judge said lincoln is the fairest man i ever had to deal with if lincoln is in this county when i die i want him to be my administrator for he is the only man I ever met with that was wholly and unselfishly honest. His ineffable purity in determining the result of a scrub-race had actually set his colleague to thinking of his latter end. But Lincoln endured another annoyance much worse than this. He was so generally esteemed and so highly admired that when any of his neighbours had a fight in prospect, one of the parties was sure to insist upon his acting as his second, Lincoln was opposed to fights, but there were some fights that had to be fought, and these were set, a day fixed, and the neighborhood notified. In these cases there was no room for the offices of a mediator, and when the affair was preordained and must come off mr Lincoln had no excuse for denying the request of a friend. Two neighbors, Harry Clark and Ben Wilcox, says mr Rutledge, had had a lawsuit. The defeated declared that, although he was beaten in the suit, he could whip his opponent. This was a formal challenge, and was at once carried to the ears of the victor, Wilcox, and as promptly accepted. The time, place, and seconds were chosen with due regularity, Mr. Lincoln being Clark's, and John Brewer, Wilcox's second. The parties met, stripped themselves all but their breeches, went in, and Mr. Lincoln's principal was beautifully whipped. These combats were conducted with as much ceremony and punctiliousness as ever graced the duelling ground. After the conflict, the seconds conducted their respective principals to the river, washed off the blood, and assisted them to dress. During this performance, the second of the party opposed to Mr. Lincoln remarked, "'Well, Abe, my man has whipped yours, and I can whip you.' now this challenge came from a man who was very small in size. Mr. Lincoln agreed to fight, provided he would chalk out his size on Mr. Lincoln's person, and every blow struck outside of that mark should be counted foul. After this sally there was the best possible humour, and all parties were as orderly as if they had been engaged in the most harmless amusement. In 1834 Lincoln was again a candidate for the Legislature and this time was elected by a larger majority than any other man on the ticket. By this time, the party with which he acted in the future was discriminated as Whig, and he did not hesitate to call himself a Whig, although he sought and received the votes of a great many Democrats. Just before the time had arrived for candidates to announce themselves, he went to John T. Stewart and told him the Democrats wanted to run him, he made the same statement to Ninian W. Edwards. Edwards and Stewart were both personal and political friends, and they both advised him to let the Democrats have their way. Major Stewart's advice was certainly disinterested, for in pursuance of it, two of the Whig candidates, Lincoln and Dawson, made a bargain with the Democrats, which very nearly proved fatal to Stewart himself. He was at that time the favorite candidate of the Whigs for the legislature, but the conduct of Lincoln and Dawson so demoralized the party that his vote was seriously diminished. Up to this time Sangamon had been stanchly democratic, but even in this election of 1834 we perceive slight evidences of that party's decay, and so early as 1836 the county became thoroughly Whig. WE SHALL GIVE NO DETAILS OF THIS CAMPAIGN, SINCE WE SHOULD ONLY BE REPEATING WHAT WAS WRITTEN OF THE CAMPAIGN OF 1832, BUT WE CANNOT WITHHOLD ONE EXTRACT FROM THE reminiscences OF MR. ROW HERNDON. HE, LINCOLN, CAME TO MY HOUSE NEAR ISLAND GROVE, DURING HARVEST. THERE WERE SOME THIRTY MEN IN THE FIELD. HE GOT HIS DINNER AND WENT OUT IN THE FIELD WHERE THE MEN WERE AT WORK. I gave him an introduction, and the boys said that they could not vote for a man unless he could make a hand. "'Well, boys,' said he, "'if that is all, I am sure of your votes.' He took hold of the cradle and led the way all round with perfect ease. The boys were satisfied, and I don't think he lost a vote in that crowd. The next day he was speaking at Berlin. He went from my house with Dr. Barnett, the man that had asked me who was this man Lincoln, "'I told him that he was a candidate for the legislature. "'He laughed and said, "'Can't the party raise no better material than that? "'I said, "'Go to-morrow and hear all before you pronounce judgment. "'When he came back, I said, "'Doctor, what say you now?' "'Why, sir,' said he, "'he is a perfect take-in. "'He knows more than all of them put together. "'Lincoln got 1,376 votes, "'Dawson, 1,370, Carpenter, 1170, Stewart, 1164. Lincoln was at last duly elected a representative by a very flattering majority, and began to look about for the pecuniary means necessary to maintain his new dignity. In this extremity he had recourse to an old friend named Coleman Smoot. One day, in 1832, while he was clerking for Offutt, A stranger came into the store, and soon disclosed the fact that his name was Smoot. Abe was behind the counter at the moment, but hearing the name he sprang over and introduced himself. Abe had often heard of Smoot, and Smoot had often heard of Abe. They had been as anxious to meet as ever two celebrities were, but hitherto they had never been able to manage it. "'Smoot,' said Lincoln, after a steady survey of his person, I am very much disappointed in you. I expected to see an old Probst of a fellow. Probst, it appears, was the most hideous specimen of humanity in all that country." "'Yes,' replied Smoot, and I am equally disappointed, for I expected to see a good-looking man when I saw you." A few neat compliments, like the foregoing, laid the foundation of a lasting intimacy between the two men, and in his present distress Lincoln knew no one who would be more likely than Smoot to respond favourably to an application for money. "'After he was elected to the Legislature,' says Mr. Smoot, "'he came to my house one day, in company with Hugh Armstrong. "'Says he, Smoot, did you vote for me?' "'I told him I did.' "'Well,' says he, "'you must loan me money to buy suitable clothing, "'for I want to make a decent appearance in the Legislature.' i then loaned him two hundred dollars which he returned to me according to promise the interval between the election and his departure for the seat of government was employed by mr lincoln partly in reading partly in writing the community in which he lived was preeminently a community of free thinkers in matters of religion and it was then no secret nor has it been a secret since that mr lincoln agreed with the majority of his associates in denying to the bible the authority of divine revelation it was his honest belief a belief which it was no reproach to hold in new salem anno domini eighteen thirty four and one which he never thought of concealing it was no distinction either good or bad no honour and no shame but he had made himself thoroughly familiar with the writings of Paine and volney the ruins by one and the age of reason by the other his mind was full of the subject, and he felt an itching to write. He did write, and the result was a little book. It was probably merely an extended essay, but it is ambitiously spoken of as a book, by himself and by the persons who were made acquainted with its contents. In this work, he intended to demonstrate, first, that the Bible was not God's revelation, and, secondly, that Jesus was not the Son of God these were his leading propositions and surely they were comprehensive enough but the reader will be better able to guess at the arguments by which they were sustained when he has examined some of the evidence recorded in chapter nineteen no leaf of this little volume has survived mr lincoln carried it in manuscript to the store of mr samuel hill where it was read and discussed hill was himself an unbeliever but his son considered the book infamous. It is more than probable that Hill, being a warm personal friend of Lincoln, feared that the publication of the essay would some day interfere with the political advancement of his favorite. At all events, he snatched it out of his hand and thrust it into the fire, from which not a shred escaped." The sequel will show that even Mister Hill's provident forethought was not altogether equal to the prevention of the injury he dreaded end of section nine.